1: Hi, I'm Ed Vincent, founder of Festival Pass. And if you want to build valuable relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network with my good friend, Travis Chapel and Eric Schwarzynski.
2: If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Ed, thank you so much for joining me on today's show.
1: Hey, Eric. How are you? Uh, I'm glad to be here.
3: Yeah, excited to have you here, and you definitely have a really interesting journey. I want to talk about today, but I like to take these conversations back to the very beginning. Tell me a little bit about childhood, Ed. What was kind of your original idea of where you would be as an adult? What were some of your interests and and kind of personality traits early on?
1: Sure. So I, I don't know if I knew exactly where I wanted to be, but um, I've always been a, an entrepreneurial kid. I, I grew up in a uh, uh, in a kind of nice town on the Jersey shore, but uh, we were the poorest, poorest family in the, uh, in the rich town. So I was always uh, looking at uh, things that were around me, knowing that, well, I don't have the money for that. My family doesn't have the money, but I'm willing to work to to have things or not even have things, just be able to do things. Experiences right. are more important to me. So yeah, as, as a 10-year-old, I was uh, putting newspapers together to to get a five bucks and a free breakfast. And that was kind of the beginning of the journey.
3: Right, right. Yeah, it, it seems like, I mean, very early on career-wise, I mean, you were pretty hardcore into business numbers. Uh, were you always kind of analytical or did you have a, a creative side that was super evident early on or, or was it purely like running numbers, trying to start uh, doing these little business ventures here and there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I was a finance major, and I was uh, an investment banker, so so I think that's kind of on the uh, side of the financial stuff. But the reality was, I've always uh, looked at myself as a, a, a pretty even mix between left brain and right brain. The idea that uh, you can be creative in many facets, I just uh, appreciated a little bit of the knowledge around. You know, uh, I, I used to say that it doesn't matter what um, what kind of entrepreneur you are, you should understand how a financial model works because it's really hard. Yeah, you get, by looking at a financial model, you can see the uh, how a business actually operates.
3: Right, right. Well, you started initially kind of in the baking world. That was kind of your first your first venture out into into business. Can you tell me a little bit about those early experiences and maybe some of the things that you liked and disliked about being in that space?
1: Sure, so there's even more context to that. Um, I, I had started in college in my dorm room a real estate appraisal firm. so okay. I used to value uh, value homes for banks and mortgage companies that were lending to individuals uh, and in that process, um, it was the concept of valuation, right? So we were value I was valuing hard assets, real estate. and in that mechanism, there's really only three ways to value anything. It's either, You're valuing it a discounted cash flow of what that asset can produce, or you're valuing it as a comparable to other things like it, and then making adjustments if it's a little different. And that's how most of the stock market is is driven today. Uh, And then the third piece is, if you had to build it from scratch, what would it cost? And those three mechanisms of value um, still persist today in in almost every aspect of finance. Um, But the reason I bring that up is the valuing real estate turned into valuing companies, which then turned into banking.
3: So in 2001, pivoting into e-commerce, so going in from, you know, banking, you're you're working in that industry, sounded like you were very successful within that world. What was it that triggered you to exit that and go into kind of the e-commerce space?
1: New Year's parties. (laughs) <laughs> um, no, so I, and, and what I mean that actually seriously is uh, my friend, uh, a good friend of mine, and I. We used to throw these uh, big parties and have a lot of mm-hmm. friends around. So for many years, we would throw big New Year's parties in New York City and you know, a couple down in the northern part of New Jersey. And uh, and it was an epiphany in 1999. Well, while I was a banker, we decided that hey, wow, we can actually take credit cards online yeah. to pay for New Year's tickets, as opposed to running all around the five boroughs of Manhattan trying to uh, collect cash from random people and giving them tickets. And that was kind of the epiphany. And uh, from that point in time, you know, being in banking, I, I really do enjoy kind of the the overall finance world and community, and it's really helped me today looking at uh, structuring of investments and structuring of capital raising. But the reality was at the time, we, I was always a service provider uh, and I was helping other people structure mm-hmm. and raise capital as an investment banker. But I really wanted to be the one running the company. I wanted, mm-hmm. I wanted the one to actually be doing the operations and creating the ideas and using the finances to be able to grow.
3: Sure. Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the things I thought was interesting about your, I mean, your resume for, for lack of a better word is that you had so much time within the traditional model of business. Like you were working as part of a a cog in the larger machine uh, and then venturing out into your own with, you know, digital technology becoming more and more available, being able to kind of operate at a scale that, you couldn't have imagined, I'm sure, when you first started taking that initial job, like how do you operate something that can potentially grow like an e-commerce business or a SaaS company and operate it yourself with not as much capital as you would expect to need early on. What, what was your first venture into that space? Was it purely just doing those parties or was there did you start uh, very early, like kind of pushing into a product and, and trying to make that your your main source of income.
1: Yeah, no. So, so, uh, there was a point in time while I was at the bank that I decided to leave. And, uh, and that's when we launched, uh, the, my partner and I, the one who we used to throw the New Year's parties with, um, we launched something called CityStuff.com. That was the mm. first, uh, first e-commerce company. Um, and that was in the classic internet 1.0 days of, you know, New York city and California. And, um, it was pre-Google pre-Facebook, uh, mm. and, it was just fascinating to be in a place where uh, you actually had to build all of the uh, software yourselves so you know it was a lot more expensive to build an e-commerce platform you know in the in the millions as opposed to you know now you could pull Shopify off, off the shelf and, yeah. and start an income as business tomorrow.
3: The lack of like saturation, because now it seems like everybody has a Shopify store. Everybody's got some kind of online, at least merch, they're selling t-shirts or something. Do you feel, obviously hindsight's 2020, so it's hard to really gauge these things, but do you feel like there was an advantage to getting into it so early where there was so few in the space? Or do you feel like with how much work went into having to build just the, to make it functional, you know, functional? Uh, do you feel it was a more difficult time to jump into it?
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to um put a specific answer to that. I mean, back then it was uh there was the beginning of the unknown. So the like there's just the idea of what could be, and that was the mm-hmm. whole kind of 1.0 stage. And nobody knew what like the real business model was gonna play out to be. And mm-hmm. and uh, if you look back in history, you realize that there were a bunch of companies that didn't have business models that yeah. uh got funding. But uh, what made it much easier it, it, today is to be able to have a concept, and idea and test it with, right. you know, with $50,000, you can be out there testing a, a product, a concept, you know, social media and uh, finding an audience didn't exist by, back then. It was all about advertising. You needed millions of dollars of advertising to tell people what your dot com was so they could actually arrive at your page. There was no such thing as search engines.
3: Yeah, it's, it's crazy thinking to a time where it's the wild, wild west of, <laughs> of marketing and like having to manage that balance between the physical marketing, the online marketing. And it is, it's, it's I was talking to somebody earlier today on, a, on an interview and I was saying, it's crazy that the people sitting in classrooms, it's the reason I love talking back to childhood. People sit in classrooms thinking about what they want to be when they grow up. And most of those jobs now didn't exist when they were sitting in that kindergarten classroom. It's a exactly. totally new frontier just from where you're talking about starting to now where every, you know, 17, 18 year old I know who has any kind of business sense is starting Shopify stores and drop shipping from China. And it's <laughs> like, it, it's crazy. It, it's just unbelievable that that's the, that's the position we're in. I have to ask you this. And this is a question. I heard you men- mention this on a show and I have to ask because I'm I'm morbidly curious about it. Um, Part of your career that stands out to me is you spent some time doing data for MoviePass. And when I first looked at your current company, in my mind, I thought, oh, it looks like MoviePass. It was like very similar in the kind of core concept of, of what it is. But you you worked with the data for MoviePass for for a while, and how how long was that period? Was it was it a fairly short period, or was it was it fairly long running?
1: So there's two things. So the uh, the core business model between MoviePass and Festival Pass is very 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 different. So I'm happy to dive into that and yeah. share that. So I, I want to make that crystal clear because it's a MoviePass, while very interesting of a of a product market fit, had some flaws in the business model, but. Uh, I was there for eight, about 18 months. Um, mm-hmm. I had a data company that I founded called Predict Analytics that was uh, about a five for four or five-year company. Uh, and during that time, MoviePass found me and my company because of a lot of the work we'd done for a lot of big television and film companies. So we were working with a Networks and AMC Networks and Screen Vision and lots of these other big companies. Um, and they saw that we had an expertise in really understanding consumer data in the entertainment space. So they needed, as they were growing, growing so rapidly um, and uh, by the time I joined them I was a uh, I joined them through my company so they hired my, hired my company and then actually asked me to come in as their chief data officer on an interim basis and uh, it was fascinating. you know they had grown from 20,000 subscribers to three and a half million in less than a year. And now had all this data with three and a half million subscribers, and needed a strategy on well, what do we do with this data? How do we how do we not only have data governance, but then how do we ensure we're monetizing the data and not necessarily monetizing it through selling it, but utilizing it to uh, to grow the business model?
3: Right, right, yeah, it, it's it's fascinating to me because MoviePass feels. I mean, I've joked with with some friends like I'd love an Aaron Sorkin script and get a movie made about you know, MoviePass, like we got a social network or something like that. It would be an interesting interesting journey. But I was curious from your perspective, you're sitting there with the data, you're looking at information. Like when MoviePass came out, I was sitting there going, this seems too good to be true. You know, and that's kind of everybody's reaction. That's why they gained, you know, as many subscribers as they did in a short period of time. When you first sat down and looked at the company, did you have in your mind these red flags of, this is not going to work. This is this is too good to be true. This isn't going to function. Or was there a path that where that company and that model $9 a month to go see unlimited movies could have worked for them?
2: Yeah. So there,
1: there was a very solvable path to success. Okay. And, you know, if, if I, if I can think back without naming names or, or individual people, most of the management team were very highly skilled, successful people and many agreed on the path for success. And, uh, I'm pretty sure today if it had been implemented upon recommendation and I was one of the recommenders, um, that movie best still would, well, COVID could have heard it, but, yeah, but, uh, yeah. but outside of COVID, um, it could have had a sustainable business. And and the truth is, is that at the time, I'm trying to remember the actual numbers, but the, the large majority of people that were ever canceling the service would have been happy to pay more money. And many of the people would have been happy to be limited on the number of films they could see in a month. The problem was, is that uh, it just... There wasn't some buy-in from certain levels of management of the difference between growth at all costs versus um, building a sustainable business model. And that there's a lot of underlying issues sure. with, with any kind of subscription model where you don't control the gross margin.
3: Yeah. Was that kind of the the nail in the coffin you feel like was just the the unwillingness to adjust the pricing or put restrictions on the subscription?
1: I do. I mean, at the end of the day, when when a lot of it inspired uh what we were doing here at Festival Pass is uh, I promised myself I would never build a business where when I asked people to do more of what I originally brought them to the platform to do, that then I would lose money. The idea in in the Movie Pass days is, you know, over 70% of the individuals weren't getting value and about 25% were getting too much value. So it right. was really a, a, a it was a pendulum shift where it it was very difficult to keep people happy when most were not getting value, but only the select few were you know effectively um abusing the system, if you will, but sure. the model shouldn't be in a position where that's allowed. You know, one of the core differences with what we've done and many companies out there have learned, not many, but a few have learned um, how to how to fix that. If, I don't know if you're familiar with ClassPass as, as a company.
3: Yeah, I looked into um, them a little bit after I'd heard you, you. You had compared your platform to ClassPass meets Airbnb. And so I had yeah. looked a little bit into them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And the biggest core there is um, they had a lot of the same problems Movie did for the first four years of their existence, five years. Mm -hmm. And the hard part is, is whenever you have a a business model where somebody else owns the inventory and you're a marketplace to share that, the only way to ensure positive gross margin metrics on every transaction, which is what creates a, a sustainable growing company, is to ensure... That you have some level of dynamic pricing for the type of product, mm-hmm. and the one thing that really made it hard for MoviePass uh, or any uh, film-driven company is the exhibitors who uh, were providing that inventory, meaning those tickets. They didn't control the pricing. Studios controlled the pricing, so you could, you know, you can go to a, a movie at at noon, you know, at, at uh, an empty theater, pay fifteen dollars in New York City or you can go Friday night at eight o'clock and pay $15 in New York city. There's no such thing as dynamic pricing. And, you know, one of the goals out there was to create a dynamic pricing environment, but there it was, it was too difficult with the structure that the the traditional film kind of business worked Um, vastly different in what ClassPass built vastly different in what we're doing in live events. And, you know, the good news is is there's a huge opportunity out there to build a sustainable long-term model that is good for the consumer and good for the business.
3: Right, right. What would you say before we move into to Festival Best, and this is adjacent to it, um, is what would you say are maybe two or three of the top lessons that you would give? And you've given a couple practical, specifically relating to companies... Like MoviePass, but for those running subscription companies, period, what would be two or three pieces of advice you'd really encourage them to take to heart?
1: Understand the underlying metrics of the cost of goods sold. When you have a traditional SaaS company where you have super high margins on software, it's it's relatively easy to provide, you know, different ways to acquire companies and different ways to scale it because the margin is so big and every Every additional unit you're delivering doesn't cost you out-of-pocket as significant. But when you're building a marketplace where somebody else is the owner of that inventory, um, whether that's a service-based business like an Uber or Lyft or or anything else, you just have to know your margins. Um, And as long as you're you're not subsidizing the product each step of the way, so even in any other kind of subscription company, subscription boxes, whatever it is, as long as you know the unit economics of every transaction, there's opportunity to scale the business
3: got it got it so so moving into festival pass which obviously can break down a little bit of what the what the model is there you're you're still in that subscription world a, a little bit you're you're trying to give people access to multiple different events keeping them at a monthly subscription price tell me a little bit about how that came about and kind of what the what the model is there
1: Yeah. So back to the context of my entire kind of entrepreneurial career is I feel that each stage of of the career led to the why today. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, and that's why I think I'm the perfect person to, to kind of build this company at this time. So going back to after that e-commerce company, I mentioned the next company I built was a, an experiential marketing company, about a 70-person agency where we would bring big brands to very big events. We helped build film festivals and, and large music events we'd bring, bring brands to. It, it made me fall in love with the concept of what it really means to be in a, a unique experience that only happens once and that's what live events really are that that whatever that event is whether it's a food and wine event or a Broadway show or a sporting event it only happens at that one moment um, a little different than things like you know TV or film that, that can be watched over and over and over again it's a different experience not to not to say that seeing a movie in the theater isn't also a unique experience because that collection of people in the seats will never actually be in that same room again for that same movie. No. Anyway, that all being said, I really fell in love with live events. Fast forward to having a SaaS-based business, I started really appreciating the concept of recurring revenue to be able to understand how it makes it easier to predict future outcomes when you have um, the knowledge of of, uh, standardized um, subscription-based revenue. Uh, And then moving forward to that, I built Predict Analytics, which was a big data company around entertainment. And it really allowed me to understand how data is so important in be able to build a company to create a recommendation engine that makes the consumer experience much better, but also be able to use data to predict outcomes. So when I when I look at the experiential side of understanding events, the recurring recurring business model and then understanding how data drives it all. And then obviously having the experience at MoviePass gave me a very good perspective on what to do and what not to do in a right. subscription entertainment product. That all led me to what we're building today. And I can go on and on It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a huge global, um, uh, opportunity. There's a $200 billion market. So, uh, it's, it's even 20 X the size of the film market.
3: Right. Right. Yeah. And, and like, like you mentioned with movie pass, it's a perfect learning experience to get to see what went wrong. And, you know, you got to see firsthand, probably more than most people, you got to see from the ground up, like where are things kind of, kind of taking a, taking a wrong turn. And, you know, with Festival Pass, uh, for someone who's on the consumer side of it, and I definitely want to get some more on the business side, for sure. someone who's a consumer, what could they expect from taking advantage of Festival Pass and, and what benefits is it bringing to them?
1: Yeah, so, so lots. So it's really instead of a subscription i look at it as a membership right so when people are signing up to be a part of festival pass and 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 i think i said it a little bit earlier but festivals is really just a go to market brand mm-hmm. we're not just festivals we're we're any live event any any music performance any sporting event theater Food and wine events, so it's really not just festivals. But that all being said, is when the consumer joins, they'll have access to to be able to budget. And one thing I, I learned a lot. One of our investors and advisory board members is one of the the kind of most well known millennial and Gen Z experts around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy by the name of Jason Dorsey, and uh, and he sees it on a daily basis of how millennials and how Gen Zs tend to like to budget uh, their life, how they like to mm-hmm. live through experiences like, okay, I know my rent costs X, my food costs are X, my um, you know entertainment costs are X, and the ability to kind of manage their life through that budgeting. Um, that really helps uh, in a situation like ours, because what we're trying to do is try to allow individuals to commit. If they're going to budget $99 a month to go to live events, they should do so with us because then they can choose how they spend that money. Money. So some of the benefits of doing so is one, um, just the, the pure recommendation engine that we've built that enables people to discover things that that are really cool. Um, the, one of the things I did learn at MoviePass was once somebody's already committed to coming to a platform, they'll discover things that they traditionally wouldn't see in, in the outside media. Yeah. You know, a lot of the members of MoviePass would go to an independent film they had never even heard of, rather than just go to a blockbuster because they saw a TV ad for it. So that's one great uh, concept. There's a lot of discovery happening on Festival Pass. So somebody that might like a specific band that they see at a specific venue, you know, I'm here in Austin, Texas, so they might see a, you know, the Black Pumas at Stubbs, and then realize that hey, I like that kind of music, and 20 minutes away, they're playing at a different venue. Or oh, uh, I didn't realize it, but I also uh, would love to go to you know uh, p- pick your pick your genre uh, a cool band playing out in wine country. That sounds yeah. awesome. So anyway, that discovery is a super helpful mechanism for the consumer. And then the the big one is uh, one of the big ones is um, most ways people acquire tickets these days, or for the last call it couple of decades is very transactional there's not much brand loyalty there and there's not a community and we really are building this community of like-minded people so that it's a fun experience to share with your friends a, a way to discover a way to be social you know we we don't charge ticketing fees so it's a, it's a concept of uh transparency a little more than than the fee itself is the ability for somebody to say well I get it you know if if uh, I want to go to this event it's 22 credits that makes sense. I might have 200 credits in my in my account, and that makes sense to me. I can use 22 credits to go see this band, or I can use five credits to go see a comedy show that I didn't even know existed before. So the idea is you can gamify your experience and choose to how to make it any way you want to make it.
3: Right. How, how have you kind of nourished that community aspect with multiple users? Because obviously live events are super communal. So you've got groups of people planning trips, going out to, to things like that. You mentioned community was really important. How are you kind of bringing, you know, people together in that way who are using the platform?
1: Yeah. So a lot of it is still on the roadmap. So we're, we're, you know, as, as any kind of new company, there's only so much you can do at one time, but a lot of things will happen where people will be able to connect internally. So if you're a member of Festival Pass, you'll be able to build uh, almost like you would find on any social network, a, a friend connection. So you might have uh, 100 of your friends that are all, also all Festival past members or even connecting your Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, or others so you know what your friends are doing. And uh, so what will happen is as you look at different events on the platform, you'll be able to see if you're connected to your friends, oh, John's going mm-hmm. to this event, Susie's going to this event that's cool. Now I want to go. Or you'll be able to go in and say, I'm going to go to this event and I want to tell all my friends that I'm going. So it automatically will trigger out either a social message or an email saying, hey, Ed is going to go see you know, X band at X venue. Um, do you guys want to join? And they'll be able to come back in and, and find ways to engage in that way. Other things is when you get into like imagery, being at the event, we're going to want to encourage people as they're taking pictures, upload into the system, uh, share what's going on, and then create some pretty cool, um, you know, facial recognition technology, so that when you go in and look at the hopefully millions of photos we'll have on the platform, that all of a sudden I'll immediately see me and my friends as opposed to you know one of the the tens of thousands that are there.
3: Right. Right. No, that's that's super super cool. Is, is there a benefit for? Uh, because obviously, you know, like you said, it's been very transactional, like you just go to the the cheapest place, <laughs> you know, the the venues just trying to sell the tickets. So they're going, you know, Ticketmaster selling out, you know, all these different, all these different companies. Is there a benefit for venues claiming, you know, they're like a musician, you know, being available on the platform or a venue really using Festival Pass to be their main kind of ticket seller for them?
1: Yeah, so there's two, two, two pieces there because they're two different questions. So if you think of it as the venue, the one thing we're not trying to do is we're not trying to displace primary ticketing companies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they have relationships and those go deep and there's a function for it. So whether it's Ticketmaster or anybody else that's a primary ticketer, what we want to do is we're building this place where we're hopefully we'll have millions of members that is a really a marketing channel for a lot of these venues. So the ability to gain access to a, a high frequency, highly motivated social group of people in order to get more people to discover their events and their products. So, so, uh, it's important to kind of make that distinction is we're not trying to be the full ticketer of an event, but if I can sell five to 10% of, uh, or when I say sell, if I can make available to my members five or 10% of a show, um, and that helps the venue fill the seats for that show. Fantastic. The other thing that a lot of the venues tend to like, and uh, venues and event producers, is um, none of them want to ever discount tickets. So the idea that um, you know I'm I'm going to have a show and I have a thousand tickets to sell, and maybe it's a week out from the show and I've only sold 500. There are other ways traditionally people have gone about uh, filling seats by by discounting through Groupon or other other uh, places where they can do so. The problem with that is you create this concept where people can just go in and Google the ticket and find out they can get it for 40% less than Groupon rather than going direct to buy the, the ticket at 100%. Because we're a membership organization and because we're a credit-based currency, there's really no direct concept of discounting. So mm-hmm. one of the, the venues that want to bring a hundred more people to a show can provide us with um, the word discount. I don't like it, but provide us with tickets for our members and potentially have a, you know, share, share revenue with us so that we can make the tickets, um, you know, available to our members at a cost that works while at the same time, you know, we, we maintain a margin for ourselves, but the reality is, is it never will cannibalize their own direct ticket sales. Right. Um, So it's a, it's a really, it's a innovative way to make sure everybody wins right the venue gets to fill more seats our members get special privileges for committing to a monthly subscription and nobody that traditionally would go in and buy a hundred percent a single ticket um they're not losing that revenue
3: right right you're, you're kind of disrupting without displacing anybody like nobody's getting thrown off to the side through, yeah, and, th-
1: yeah. And, and that's why we use the kind of Airbnb kind of reference, right? Or Home Away or any of the, those yeah. other kind of concepts, right? Is we're just a marketplace. People can bring their inventory, which is whether it's music or sports or anything. And we already have a highly engaged audience that really wants to consume that inventory. So we're just a place where people can, a centralized place, we can find tickets from hundreds of different primary ticketers, thousands of different venues, you know, dozens of different genres and it's all in one place and we're packaging it for our members in a very social frictionless consumable way so they'll do more of it yeah that's awesome
0: this episode of the show is brought to you by indeed we are driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all it's to match and match with is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed Here on the podcast, indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you
3: need Indeed. Well, I I definitely want to talk a little bit about networking because the show is called Build Your Network. And uh, I know know you've talked a little bit about how relationships helped really guide the initial uh, ventures in your career. I'm I'm curious, we ask this question to everybody who comes on the show Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say it is who you know. But the who you know just is it gets you through the door, mm. and the what you know is is what allows the who you know to support you. Mm. That makes any sense. So everybody, if you have access to people that trust you and that want to empower you to succeed, then then the who you know really helps. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've seen it in our own um, kind of world, right? We we've been lucky. Through relationships to have an amazing group of investors, you know, not huge, but some are some are smaller investors, but very influential. We we have you know professional athletes that are investors. We have entrepreneurs that have sold companies for billions of dollars that are investors. You know, as I mentioned before, we have the the global guru and millennial and Gen Z as an investor. We have the CEO of Alamo Drafthouse Film Company as an investor. Mm-hmm. So all these people really, they're they're wonderful people that believe in the business model and hopefully also believe in the, my ability to, to move it forward. So it, the who you know gets easier once once you have a, an idea and a track record that makes it more powerful.
3: Right, right. What what would you say to somebody who is reaching out to somebody? Because we have we have a lot of people in our in our listenership that have SaaS companies, they have startups, and they're reaching out to investors who are on these crazy levels, seem almost unattainable. And you know they're coming in with value and and what they know, but they're reaching out to people who have an immense you know an event, immense amount of knowledge within the business space. How do you, from your experience, how do you present yourself correctly to people that you're reaching out to? How do you bring value to somebody? Uh, who is working at at such a high level.
1: You mean in terms of like seeking somebody to be an advisor or an investor? Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is just doing your homework, right? The the, Having the ability to know why, Mm. like, is it, do I just want this person's money or I just want to put them on a, you know, a byline on a website to say that they're involved? If if they can't really contribute, then they're not going to be a part of it. But if, you know, I, I can, out of the probably 20 to 25 plus individuals that invested, each one had a reason. You know, I, I, when I mentioned HomeAway before, so the one of the original co-founder of HomeAway is an investor, but HomeAway is a marketplace, right? So yeah. he has tremendous marketplace experience and understands that what we're trying to build truly is a marketplace. So not only can he provide us with very unique advice, but also um, could see his capital uh, going further because he can provide some expertise. you know in the world of Alamo Drafthouse it's expertise in understanding that entertainment space. So maybe we will eventually have movies on festival pass yeah. done in a way that's much different than the original movie pass was. Sure. I can go on and on each one is adds value. that's the right. point I'm trying to make.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm curious too, as you've kind of worked your way through your career, building these organic relationships is huge. And obviously uh, those relationships are going to fall into place, reaching out to people, making connections. What role have maybe paid masterminds or you know paying for access to certain individuals uh, for mentorships or things? How, how much have you done of that? And has that been a worthwhile investment for you?
1: Yeah, I would say my biggest um, return on networking has come through something that's not really networking so uh i'm part of an entrepreneur's organization it's called eo if uh, i don't know if your listeners know it um it's pretty much a sister organization to ypo which is another organization people know about but, uh, it's really functions as a peer group, so there's 14,000 entrepreneurs globally. You know, each city has a chapter. I'm now in the Austin chapter that has about 200 people. I was in New York chapter for 14 years with about 200 people. But what's amazing about the organization is it's global in nature, there's a ton of learning events to be able to continue to build. Just I'm a lifelong learner, and everybody in that organization is a lifelong learner. Um, and when you uh, surround yourself with peers that are all constantly seeking to better themselves, both business-wise and personally, wanting to have better relationships with their with their friends and their children and their spouses, and wanting to have a more balanced life overall. You tend to have um, the ability to network. So, in this organization, as an example, I can call upon any of the 14,000 people globally, and they'll take my call, uh, and they'll they'll do anything they can to help me. Uh, find what I'm seeking. So that's one great example. And I'm also part of another group called EPX uh, Worldwide. That's another group of kind of passionate entrepreneurs that that tend to do wanting to do nothing else but help.
3: Right. That's awesome. Well, I I definitely appreciate you taking time to share a little bit. And I'm going to move us into our, our random round here. The first question I want to ask you is, what profession other than your own, do you think it would be fun to attempt?
1: I would say the one thing I always wanted to do uh, and never had an opportunity to is uh, to work in the travel sector on Mm -hmm. some kind of uh, like thing, like a yacht or a uh, cruise ship or, you know, some, some amazing far off place where I spent, you know, a few years in, let's say, Bali, you know, at some kind of resort and trying to understand the different cultures.
3: Right, right. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and ask them anything for an hour, who would it be and why?
1: Rudyard Kipling, um, who is a author, um, literary poet. And the reason is you might not be able to see it in the background, but there's a poster back there of a poem called if by Rudyard Kipling. And it's pretty much the poem that has guided my entire life since I was about 15. And, uh, if anybody wants to look it up, it's a, it's powerful, but, uh, you know, it's, 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 It's advice, if you will. Advice is the wrong word. It's a share that worked in the 1800s when he wrote it. And it's a share that works today. And it's things like if you hold your head about you, when all around you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can look at triumph and disaster and treat the two imposters just the same, so it's it's really kind of life lessons. So that's the that's the guy I would like to sit next to.
3: How do you like to learn best? Is it through books, audiobooks, uh podcasts, videos? What's your favorite way to consume educational content?
1: Yeah, my favorite way, which isn't always accessible all the time, is um, speakers speakers events. Hmm. A lot of our EO group, um, we bring in some of the best speakers in the globe to come in. And I spent three years um, at a program at MIT where we just The whole program is three to four speakers a day for a week straight. And basically, they're some of the best professors, some of the best authors. To me, that's the context that is the best way to learn. But coming out of that, then uh, most of them wrote books. So books tends to be the, the second best for me.
3: Right, right. Can you give me a glimpse of your morning routine?
1: Sure. You know, everybody used to say, you know, early risers get the worm. That's not me. Uh, I'm usually uh, up by 7:30 or 8. Get a coffee, go work out. Usually, don't I, I look at emails while I'm having coffee before I work out, and then uh, and then come back and by around 9:30, 10 a.m. kind of start the day. Have meeting after meeting. Obviously, Zoom through the through COVID is a little different than a lot of the in-persons that are beginning to happen. But yeah, and then just work through the uh, work through the evening on various projects, and then uh, you know go out, have a nice dinner, glass of wine.
3: Do you have a go-to pump-up song to start your day with?
1: No, but uh, I have three daughters, so it's always a joke. They used to always get mad when I wanted to wake them up in the morning and and I'd either have uh, It's Gonna Be a Good Day by, by Nappy Roots. I don't know if you know the song. And then uh, just, you know, it's, it's usually those morning songs, like, uh, no. you know, oh, it's, it's, it's Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma. That's a little <laughs> aging me from... Uh...
3: <laughs> That's funny. What is something that you're not very good at?
1: There's a, a difference between... Not being capable and not enjoying. So, I do believe that I'm capable of most things, but the more I enjoy things, I tend to, uh, it's easier for me and therefore I I succeed and and are better at it. The things I like the least, which are the things that are more challenging, is just pure operational aspects of a business. Mm. So, um, the context of paperwork, the context of, you know, filling out HR forms and, um, you know, going through the, classic process of pure operations. Um, right. And I know other people love it. So I, I'd rather, uh, you know, hire in where we're going to have a, a new person join us in, in the next month or so that's going to come on the leadership team to, to really drive a lot of those operations.
3: Gotcha. What is one place online where people can connect with you the most?
1: Yeah, I mean, from a business perspective, mostly uh, LinkedIn is usually the place where I'll post, uh, you know, any kind of thing related to business or podcasts like this or, or other yeah. stuff like that. Um, you know, I'm also on all the other social channels. It's, it's fascinating how each one becomes their own mechanism. So mm-hmm. like for Instagram, personally, it's really just me and my kids <laughs> and my friends, my close friends on Facebook, it started that way. But then uh, after I've met so many business people globally and entrepreneurs that tend to use Facebook often, it's, it's fascinating how uh, globally people use Facebook for business more so than I think they do uh, here in the U.S., So I've kind of given into it and I have tons of business friends on Facebook.
3: (laughs) Yeah, and for the company, what's the best place for people to find out more about what you guys are offering, check it out for themselves, either as a consumer or as somebody who's interested in kind of checking out the business model?
1: Yeah, across the board. So um, we have... Festivalpass.com is the easiest way to actually see the product and what we're building. Um, We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we just started to be on TikTok a couple months ago, so we're testing that out. And then also, um, you'll see it if you go to the website, but we have kind of a 3 pronged strategy on capital raising. So while we have a lot of strategic investors that have invested millions of dollars in terms of uh, providing operating capital... We're also doing a crowdfunding campaign um, uh, through Start Engine. And if you go to invest.festivalpass.com, you'll be able to see a lot of information related to that. And there's a, there's a strategy there because it's, it's not where we need the capital to come from, but it's really about the democratization of allowing individuals that might be members to also invest. So it creates the loyalty of being part of the overall program. And I've always wanted to have the retail consumer be able to participate early on. So when we are the next Airbnb at hundred million, evaluate hundred billion evaluation that they didn't have to wait until we went public in, in order to jump in. So invest is a good way to learn about us and can invest as little as $216.
3: Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ed, for joining me on the show. I really appreciate it. And you brought a ton of value to the audience.
2: I appreciate that, Eric. Thanks. It's cr- awesome. great to be here.